Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Any ideas how we could do it Tuesday morning? I was thinking. Thinking of what? I was thinking of different ways. Tell me. This is the text exchange between Eli Weaver and Barb Raber on the morning of May 31st, two days before Eli's wife, Barbara, was found dead. I was just curious. What are you thinking of for Tuesday? Don't know. Be kind of hard with the kids in there. Yeah, it would. But we know they'd go straight to heaven if it would happen that way. I know. Over the next day and a half, Barb and Eli would have four more incriminating text exchanges. The message was clear. Get rid of Barbara using any means necessary, even if that happens to result in the killing of Eli's five children. Eli had been fishing for a woman willing to do his dirty work for nearly a decade. He'd been cultivating his relationship with Barb for more than six years. It was about time someone bit. Hi. Welcome back to Case Closed from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. I'm Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last episode was all about Barb. We heard her tragic family story. We also got to know her own idiosyncrasies, like her string of affairs and her penchant for lying. All of these odd behaviors are red flags that indicate this is a woman who's about to come undone. It would take just one person to target those vulnerabilities and push Barb over the edge. Do you think three cc's of that tempo would do it? Just blow up the house or something Tuesday morning? Or come do her tonight, Barb, please. Please, Barb. Today, we're looking into those text messages because they really are the smoking gun. I mean, Eli doesn't even try to hide what he's up to in these texts. It's like he truly believes he's going to get away scot-free. He's been living a kind of double life for a while. Perhaps he's just gotten comfortable with the anonymity that he thinks technology offers. Well, that, plus he actually lied to the police about having a phone when he was questioned. So he's probably thinking he can hide behind the no-cell-phone tradition of his Amish culture to get police off that trail. But someone did end up tipping off the police and even gave them Eli's number. It was Detective Maxwell who reached out to Eli's carrier, Verizon Wireless, to request what is called a preservation notice. It's essentially a mandate for the carrier to save all texts sent to and from a certain phone. And here's something scary. This was all happening in 2009, when most phone companies like Verizon could retrieve text message content for up to five days. They keep information like the date, time, and phone numbers for much longer than that. But the window of time to actually see the conversations is super short. So if our detectives had asked any later, they could have lost them entirely. They were such a crucial part to securing the search warrants, so the case would have been entirely derailed. Nowadays, it looks like Verizon automatically deletes text message content right after it's sent. Not a comforting thought. The police also put in requests for some other phone records. They'd been told by Furman Yoder, 
Eli's neighbor, that a strange message was left on the shanty phone's answering machine the morning that Barbara was found dead. Eli, we got the wrong person. You can run, but not hide. They'd later find out that it was David Weaver, who's unrelated to Eli. David was a friend and former lover of Barb's, who she'd gotten to place the phony call. They thought the threat would make it seem like the killers were targeting Eli, but accidentally killed Barbara instead. Phone records confirmed that the fake call did indeed come from David's cell. When detectives talked to David, they got an earful. It turns out David and Eli were also friends, and Eli had talked about killing his wife with David. He'd even asked David to help by either poisoning Barbara, taking her on a long trip to California that she'd never come back from, or finding a hitman. Plus, David recalled loaning Barb a 410-gauge shotgun four or five years earlier. He'd never gotten it back and had no idea what had become of it. David disclosed one other relevant piece of information. After he'd received the call from Barb asking him to place that fake message, he'd gotten a second, more anxious call from her. My tire tracks are probably all over there. I was there the night before. David reassured her. If she hadn't done it, she shouldn't have anything to worry about. While tire tracks placed her around the house, they didn't place her in the house. For all we know, she could have driven up to the house, chickened out, and turned right back around. When you read through her texts to Eli during this time, it's not really clear that she's done the deed. Here's their conversation late in the evening on June 1st. Ed's off tomorrow, so now what? You'll recall that Ed is Barb's husband. Why the fuck is he off? Tell him you have to haul somebody, please. Please, Barb. What time are you leaving? Three in the morning. Is he picking you up first or Dave? I'm so scared. What if I get caught? What if someone blames me? This is one of many times Barb expresses concerns about following through. Concerns that Eli brushes off. Who would see you? Who would blame you? Don't know. David Weaver. Not if we do it this way, he won't know. Don't tell Ed you're leaving. Maybe you can sneak out and back in. Do you want me to be there before you leave? Then, in the wee hours of June 2nd. I should just do it now. How am I supposed to see in the dark? Damn, Eli. I don't know if I can. It's too scary. Cue Eli, completely ignoring Barbara once more. Morning. The bottom door is open. You have no idea how I feel. Take a light with you, hon. Mwah. I'm so scared. Where are you? We're in Worcester. Just don't lose anything. Do you think I can drive in behind the pines? Yes. Here, Barb would have gotten out of her car, gun in hand. She would have softly walked the unlocked basement door and stepped into the dark house. As her eyes adjusted, she'd listen for any signs that she'd awoken one of the children. She'd have crept to Barbara's bedroom, her shadowy outline barely filling the doorway as she raised her gun. Any shakiness steadied by years of hunting. Her index finger would have tightened and... Eli and Barb's text conversation is radio silent for the hours until that afternoon when Eli gets a message from Barb. Whatever you do, don't give them your phone, please. If someone gives the cops your number, they can trace it down. The only way they can't is if the number is changed. 
Later that day, Barb got them new numbers and sent Eli one more message. It was the first sign of remorse, not for the innocent murdered Barbara, but for what this all meant for her and Eli. I just feel so bad about everything. I just want to hold you. Do you think it would lead to this? I just don't want to lose you or my boys. Eli didn't thank Barb or try to console her for being pulled into this mess. She'd served her purpose, and he wasn't planning on keeping her around. While it's clear from these messages that Barb has a guilty conscience, is it because she fired the fatal shot? Or because she knew Eli had done it? These texts tell a lot. They show the crime was premeditated and place Barbara outside the house. But there's still reasonable doubt about who was the murderer. There are only six other souls who were at the scene of the crime that night. Our six sleeping children. When we come back from the break, it's the kids' turn to speak. The most heinous thing about this crime is that it left five children without their mother. To ask them to relive this traumatic event through painful questioning required extra care. The sensitive interviews fell to Lavina Miller-Weaver, a member of the Wayne County Children's Services who spoke Pennsylvania Dutch, and Detective Maxwell. They knew based on where each child was sleeping that night that the oldest boy, Harley, would be most likely to know something. There'd been just a thin wall separating him from his mother. But when Harvey sat for the interview, he seemed dazed and couldn't remember much. Lavina and Detective Maxwell gently coaxed little details out, like how he saw his mother holding Lizzie for a while in a rocking chair before putting her in her crib near the master bedroom, and the sound of the shower at 11 p.m. Harley remained emotionless the entire time he spoke with the adults. And near the end, Lavina leaned over to tell him in Pennsylvania Dutch, what happened was not your fault, and it's all right to be sad. It wasn't until the two interviewed Susie Troyer that they found out Harley had heard a crash-bang-boom in the night. The noise had briefly woken him up, but he figured it was just thunder. Now, Susie told her side of the story like this. She'd gotten up to make breakfast and get the younger kids ready. That's when she heard the younger kids scream from Barbara's room. She came into the room to find her aunt's chest covered in blood. Maybe Barbara had just thrown up some blood, she thought. When she felt her aunt's feet, though, they were cold as a dead person's. The adults asked Susie how she knew Barbara was dead from that. She told them she'd touched her grandmother when she died, and this felt like that. They then asked her how her aunt and Eli got along together. She didn't know of any arguments between her aunt and uncle, but one night her aunt had slept at their house. Her four-and-a-half-year-old sister, Mary, described what she saw more simply. She looked yuck. When Eli's four-and-a-half-year-old son, Joseph, came in to talk, one thing was very apparent. These kids didn't really know their father very well at all, and they certainly felt his absence. Joseph's own memory of spending time with his father was in the living room. He said he liked it when his dad held him, but he didn't like it when he tickled him under his arms. The boy Harley said his father had taken him fishing just once, and seven-year-old Jacob couldn't remember the last time he'd seen his father before his mother's murder. He recalled how one time his father dumped water on Barbara, but thought he was just playing a game. 
He showed the detectives how his father sometimes grabbed his mother by the shoulders to the point where she'd cry out, ouch, and told them how he'd also been spanked too hard by Eli. With their mother gone and their father a prime suspect, Child Protective Services arranged for the Weaver children to stay with the Troyers. Their Aunt Fanny was glad the kids would stay together, but at the back of her mind was one terrifying thought. What if Eli, who she wholly believed had killed her sister, showed up at her house? Okay, so we've got the text messages and then interviews from the kids. But there was another way Eli was leaving his trail, his online dating. And it turns out the woman he flirted with through Moko's face had no reservations about dishing on what they knew. He told me how he'd left the Amish before and he was thinking about doing it again. I didn't expect to, but I fell for him. I cared about him. That's Sherry. Remember that she was the single mother who Eli had seduced. He'd spoken to her on the phone two weeks prior to his wife's murder when he cracked an off-color joke about Sherry running her over. I never thought he was capable of anything like murder. Now she wasn't so sure. She called a lawyer friend for advice, and he told her to contact the sheriff immediately. In her conversation with the detectives, they shared some especially devastating news. They'd asked Eli about potential suspects, and he'd named her. Any sympathy Sherry had for Eli was obliterated. When the police asked her to call Eli in front of them, she dialed. When the recording said the number had been changed, she created a new MocoSpace account and messaged Eli to give her a call. When he didn't respond, she took recording equipment from the police and agreed to record the call if it ever came through. Fifteen minutes after she left the police department, her phone rang. She hit record and answered. Somebody shot my wife. What? I can't talk right now. I'm at my dad's. I'll call you later. Sherry immediately called the police to tell them about the cold, matter-of-fact tone Eli took on. Definitely not how an innocent man who just lost his wife should sound. The other woman in Eli's shadow life to come forward to the police was Tabitha Melton. You'll recall that Tabitha was one of the people Barb had called the day Barbara was found dead. Let's replay that conversation. Tell me what the hell's going on. This is a joke, right? It's not real. No, it's real. What happened? Someone broke into Eli and Barbara's house and shot his wife with a 410-gauge shotgun. In the following days, one thing Barb mentioned nagged at Tabitha. And shot his wife with a 410-gauge shotgun. With a 410-gauge shotgun. How in the hell did Barb know it was a 410-gauge shotgun? Tabitha had spoken to the police in their initial investigation. But she reached out to them now, again, with this new detail. And there was more. Apparently, Barb had given her a second call, this time on June 4th, two days since the murder. Barb seemed distracted and nervous the whole time. And when Tabitha told her she'd spoken to the police, Barb denied their earlier conversation where she'd mentioned Barbara's cause of death. The call couldn't have gotten any weirder when Barb ended it. But then, Tabitha got a call from a new number. It was Barb again. She said she needed to use this number from now on before saying another quick goodbye. At this point, the police asked Tabitha point blank, do you think Eli killed his wife? In my heart, no. In my gut, yes. 
She later texted a friend a more blunt take on the situation. Eli killed his wife, and I knew about it. I just never thought he meant it. Armed with the text messages, the online dating trail, and those interviews, Assistant District Attorney Edna Boyle had all she needed to secure a warrant to search Barb Raber's house. She was out to seize computers, phones, and maybe even the missing murder weapon used to carry out this cold-blooded crime. It's time to make some arrests. That's all coming next week on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestino. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Faustino. Be sure to check out Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris's book, A Killing in Amish Country, for more about this case. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcast.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.